Now, as I have told you, to my mind, the theory of the origin of interest, which is an entirely different subject, and perhaps at first blush you wouldn't even dream of relating the two theories. But in fact, there is a very intimate connection between the two. Because, again, there is an evolution involved. And I'm going to spell it out for you. And again, there is a process whereby one single transaction is broken up into two legs, like in the case of the origin of money, those idea of selling and the idea of buying. There is something very similar here. As a matter of fact, interest, just like money, is the product of an evolution. And this evolution, and not everybody recognizes that. For example, Ludwig von Mises, a very great economist of the 20th century, he did not recognize that. He had a very dogmatic approach to the theory of interest. He believed that interest can be axiomatically introduced. And in fact, it is apodictic, he used that Greek word, which means that it is undisputable or indisputable, which is the... Indisputable. In, in, indisputable. Indisputable. Irrefutable. Also. Another. another. <laughs> so, he said that there is an axiom, he called it axiom of time preference, that we are all born, and we cannot help it, with evaluation system, and that has nothing to do with education, nothing to do with language, nothing to do with experience. We were born like that. So it pre even predates language, or thought, or logic, or everything. It is something innate. And what is this? It is the fact that we, and he uses this example, this example is Mises' own. He says that we always prefer an apple today to an apple a year from now, or ten years from now, or a hundred years from now. This is time preference. He says there's just no exception. It's apodictic. No exception. There is nobody, no freak accidents of nature. I mean, there are people who are born blind or deaf or something. 
they are freaks of they are freaks of nature. But there is no such freak of nature that somebody is born without this time preference. Uh, what's the word? Time preference <coughs> predestination. He just or he or she just has to follow this. It's inborn. And therefore, he develops his whole quite substantial theory of interest based on this axiom. The axiom of time preference. Well, uh, there are a few comments I would like to make. Because I don't accept Mises, and I'm sorry that I have to part company with him because he's a very great man and uh, his, it's very difficult to, <laughs> uh, to uh, dispute uh, the ideas of a very great man and the school which they started and the followers they still have. But I just don't agree with that. Well, first of all, I have an example which contradicts the apple example of Mises. I want to give you an example of an apple a year from now which is more highly valued than an apple today. You, are you familiar with my example? The uh, telescope? Hmm? The telescope? The telescope mirror? No, no, no. Now, this is the example. I'm, uh, then it's something new to you, so feel free to criticize it. If uh, I just present the idea and uh, the example, and then if you don't agree, feel free, or anybody else. <coughs> Imagine that you have an apple orchard. An isolated apple orchard, no nearby, no other apple orchards in the vicinity. You have to go hundreds of miles before you see another <coughs> apple orchard. And there is a bountiful apple crop this year. And just after you harvested the apple, there is a landslide which destroys the whole apple orchard <coughs> completely. You know that there will be no other crop next year. You have to plant an apple orchard from scratch before you will have another apple crop in that area. So what will this do to <coughs> the value of apples. Well, you have lots and lots of present apples. Your crop wasn't destroyed. It's still there. But you know that next year you will have to import apples from long distance away, adding the cost of shipping <coughs> and the uncertainty that you will be able to find these sources of supply. And therefore, the future apple will be more valuable than your present apple. An apple a year from today will be more valuable than the present apple you have. <coughs>
Well, that's my example. The only thing I could add is that apples have a declining marginal utility. And so if you have a lot of apples now, the value of the next apple is not necessarily very high. Maybe close to zero, and then if you don't have any apple trees, the apple a year from now when you can't produce it will be worth a lot more. But you can't produce it, so it's only theoretical. But do you agree that this contradicts uh, uh, Mises' axiom that no exception to this rule that a future apple is always less valuable. In fact, he talks about the discount <coughs> of future values without exception. There were other examples before I came up with this apple example. The, the ice in summer and ice in winter example. You all know what this means. Obviously, uh, <laughs> ice in winter is not more valuable than ice in summer, next summer, half a year later. Because in summer there is a great <coughs> demand for ice and in the winter there is practically no demand for ice. So th this has been known, but you can argue that this is a very special case and so on. But I think my example, specifically using the example of Mises, present apple, future apple, is very convincing. But I go further. I go further. And I'm going to argue that this is not an exception having to do with uh, uh, landslide, which is after all a disaster in a way, you know, destroying the apple orchard. You don't have to have a disaster. This is a very common fact in modern economics that the future good is not necessarily at a discount in comparison <coughs> uh, to the present good. So consider an entirely different example which I'm telling you now. Imagine that uh, you are constructing an observatory on a mountain top. An observatory where you will have telescopes and uh, when it's, once it's ready then you study the skies and the, and the uh, stars and nebula and Milky Ways and all that. But it has to be constructed. So there are two basic components to this observatory. One is the building itself on the mountaintop, which has to be built specifically to house this very delicate telescope, which is built somewhere else. <laughs> maybe quite far away, in a specialized factory. So it's built, and then it has to be delivered to the site, to the mountaintop. And all this is done. But now, consider the fact that it's delivered too early. Too early. Maybe a year before the building of the observatories 
constructed, finished. <coughs> so then you have the problem of warehousing that very delicate instrument, the telescope, which could be damaged or deteriorate. It could deteriorate one way or another during that waiting period. So obviously this is mismatch. The telescope was delivered too early and therefore its value is lower. Its present value is lower than its future value a year from now when the building construction is finished. And this shows that matching or dovetailing <coughs> the factors involved in producing the final result, the complete observatory, is, is uh, very critical. Timing is very critical. So I am suggesting this in drawing the following diagram. What Mises says is that the present value, I call it PV, starts here. And this is the maximum. And then year after year after year, it falls. It will never be negative, but it will approach zero somehow, like this. So call this FV. What is FV for? What does it stand for? Future value. Future value, okay. <coughs> now, I'm not arguing this never happens. Sure, it, in most of the cases it could. But in our, our modern complex economy, which has the problem of delivering the factors of production to the assembly place, they come from different places and then it's assembled here, then there is a very specific timing schedule which calls for a ex pretty exact time for delivery, which if you miss, in other words, deliver later, or if you deliver earlier, then there's a mismatch involving losses. So rather than this, I'm suggesting it to you that the proper curve to draw is different. This is zero, and again here, this is zero level. So the present value could be this. Right now, that's the value of, say, the telescope. And then you have to deliver it to the site and so on. So its value is increasing. And it reaches a maximum somewhere. After that, it will decline much the same way as this. 
So that's the future value. But there is a top, a maximum, and that's very important. That it's like a bell-shaped curve rather than a straight declining curve, what is involved here, when you study the question of present value and future value. And I would say there's no disaster, landslide or this or that, no destruction. It's just the logic of the thing that a modern product is a complex product which involves assembly and the factors of production which come together at the assembly place will have to meet a rather tight time schedule. And because of that, the the very common feature is this, rather than that. So, I... Oh, thank you. So, <laughs> let's, let's just keep them here. Because <laughs> we're going to happen again. In fact, I, I lost the other one. <laughs> I'll get it. <laughs> so I hope you agree with me that the problem is actually more complicated than just saying that present value is always the highest and the future value is declining as a function of time. It's not as simple as that in a complex economy which involves uh, the assembly of the factors of production. Now, if I yank out the carpet from underneath the edifice of the theory of interest as presented by Mises, then this theory will collapse. So we have to put something in place. And this is where my idea came that we have to go back to Manger and use the mythology of Manger to develop a theory of interest. And that is what I'm planning to do with you in this course. And as a first step, I am going to discard the idea of Mises that the basic exchange is the exchange between present goods and future goods. This is the problem Mises puts at the center of his theory of interest. That for various reasons which we may agree with that we are we are mortal, we are going to die, we are not like the Olympic gods in ancient Greece who uh, are immortal. And because of that we have the curse of senescence. This means, it's a fancy word for saying that as we get older we are more liable to get sick or f f 
feeble or, or fragile. And, uh, therefore, our surplus of uh, energy is declining and at the same time our need for resources increase because we need more medicine, more medical attention, or more protection, or help, maybe trying to walk, we need somebody, we need nurses, some people need nurses in three shifts, uh, and so on. So, because of that, there is a contradiction. We cannot help. We are all mortal, without exception. This is indisputable. And therefore, we have to agree that there is need for exchanging present goods for future goods. We want to, when we are young, <coughs> We have a surplus of energy, and we, we want to carry value from here to, the, to a future point, when we are older and getting more and more helpless. And, and uh, this is the problem, exchanging present goods for future goods. So that's again a kind of axiom which Mises' theory of interest has. And I would say this, that sure, exchanging present goods for future goods may be a very basic problem. But still, I. I cannot think of an example of exchanging a present apple for a future apple. In other words, uh, this is not a universal thing. Surely the, you want to exchange present value for future value, but uh, it, is, it is really the exception. There is, you don't have so many examples. I'm not saying we don't have any. We probably have lots of examples. But these are not the really typical examples. Because the really typical examples is not exchanging present good for future good, but it is exchanging income for wealth. So a young, a young man is accumulating funds and converts his income into wealth because he knows that he will be older, at one, one day will be older and need more, and then he wants to convert his wealth into income. So in other words, Instead of exchanging present good for future good, we break up this one-step exchange and we make it into two exchanges. One is, uh, and perhaps instead of saying exchange, I prefer to say convert. Convert income into wealth because at the later date I want to convert the wealth into income. So that is the problem which we want to solve. That's the really 
universal problem. A changing a present apple, future apple is very exceptional. It could happen, it may happen, but that's not typical and it's certainly not applicable to every one of us. But what is applicable to every one of us is that we need to convert uh, income into wealth, which later on convert back into income. That's the real universal problem. And this is the problem that the theory of interest must address and must solve. And, uh, <coughs> and that's what we are trying to do. So, um, this is the starting point. And you see already the similarity between Menger's original theory of the, on the origin of money and this budding theory of the origin of interest. Because Menger also started with discarding an idea which was the idea of of uh, direct exchange and said well this barter is really in practice is broken up into two steps selling and buying now here the uh, exchanging of present value into future value is also broken up one is converting income into wealth and wealth into income. So using the exactly the same methodology what Menger did, we are going to use the same methodology to solve that problem. And we have this problem as I have said already because we are mortal, we are going to die, and we all face that problem that our uh, um, energy is declining and we have to save. If we want to make our uh, harvest years uh, relatively peaceful and, and um, enjoyable, then we have to provide for the future and that's what we do. We have, we save and then we dis save. And I use the word converting already because there is a conversion involved. So that is the next very important question. And how do you convert income into wealth and wealth into income? And here I am suggesting that the word Absatzfähigkeit comes back again. But we need a slight improvement on that. Because we break up the concept of marketability into two types of marketability. One is the Marketability in the large and marketability in the small. 
and when it comes to uh, converting income into wealth, it involves hoarding. And when you convert wealth into income, it comes to this hoarding. These are two different things, but using the same idea. You need some material, some kind of substance, some kind of good which answers the needs of this uh, convertibility in an optimal way. So we are looking for the commodity which has the greatest marketability in the small. So the theory of interest depends on the concept of or, or can be described as the search for the commodity with the greatest marketability in the small. By contrast, the origin of money, Menger's original theory on the origin of money, depends on the concept of marketability in the large, which means that you are looking for the commodity which is most marketable in the large, and that is the, the good which you, going to the market, selling your surpluses, you are happy to exchange your surpluses for the most marketable good, even if you don't need it for its own uh, sake. You don't use it. You just take it in preference of anything else because it makes it easier for you to turn around and then do your buying. You have some needs to satisfy and if you have the most marketable good in the large, then you will be able to do the buying on, uh, on most advantageous terms. You see, so th this is uh, almost a mirror image of the two problems, the marketability in the large, marketability in the small, origin of money, origin of interest, and, and uh, th this is my motivation, and I hope it will be used too, to see the problem in this duality. There is a duality here. The uh, problem of origin of money on the one hand, origin of interest on the other. The problem can be solved using the magic word Absatzfähigkeit, marketability, but now we qualify. We say marketability in the large, that's the origin of money, marketable in the small, that's the origin of interest. Now I'm aware that I have overstepped my time, I'll just take a couple more minutes because I want to, after the break, I will abandon this subject and we'll talk about something else, but that's my introduction for the whole course, you see, because, because we have, uh, the title of our course is, as you all know, uh, The Austrian Theory of Money and Credit.
Well, money is Menger's origin of money. And credit involves the notion of interest. So that's the theory of interest. So that's really very germane to our task here in this particular course, the 10 day course. Austin uh, and then you say why, why we call it the new Austrian School of Economics because uh, what we do here is we extend the ideas of Menger to make it more general. It was special and I'm <coughs> confident that Menger if he lived longer or if his son Karl with a K would have been a little more uh, Insightful, shall we say, he could have completed it in his lifetime because he was familiar with the thoughts of his father who died uh, when he was a young man of 21. I think he was born in 1900. Carl the son with a K. Uh, and he lived also uh, for a long age and uh, he in the 30s went to the United States, University of Illinois, he became a mathematician, so that's why I'm a little bit familiar with his work. He did not contribute to economics after that. He became uh, a specialist in mathematics, and it's, he would, could have done that, he didn't. So it, the task was handed down to us to complete Menger's original Idea. I hope, you see, I'm trying to convince my audience that I am not doing something here which is too artificial and too contrived. I'm trying to do something here which is natural, which is really missing. And some other people could have could, thought of... Could I share with them what I shared with you last night? Yes. Please. In, in having discussions with a number of people from what they call the Austrian school nowadays, which basically means the Mises Institute, or the so-called Mises Institute. I think Mises himself would be rolling over in his grave if he knew what they were doing in his name. But I think the, the, com the world of mainstream economics wants to banish money from the monetary system, money being gold. The Mises Institute wants to banish credit from the system. Right? They don't want fractional reserve banking, which means they don't want lending, which means they don't want credit. And they actually use the medieval term usury. Uh, some of them do in describing this. And so what the professor is doing is saying, well, you can't banish money from the system, but you can't banish credit either. There has to be a monetary system that actually marries both in a successful way. And I don't think that's in any way contrived. I think that's the most important thing, uh, most important task of economics, or particularly monetary science. And do it seamlessly, more, more or less. Right. Because the transition from money to credit and back doesn't have to be a bumpy transition. It should be as smooth as possible. But that is assuming a whole lot that you have credit developed in an optimal way. So the last thought which I wanted to add before we break up for the uh, coffee uh, is that 
we have talked about conversion, converting wealth, income into wealth, and wealth into income, or converting uh, uh, the uh, uh, converting uh, present good to future good. But now there's a big step, just <coughs> in Menger's origin of money. The big step is that from conversion you graduate to, what's the word I'm looking for? From conversion you graduate exchange. to exchange. exchange, which is a huge step, a huge step, when you can abandon hoarding and this hoarding and you make the exchange because if you do hoarding that's fine nothing wrong with it but you have to wait you are a young man and you want to uh, accumulate capital to start your own business and that might take 10 years the best years of your life and that's not very efficient. But if you find, uh, as a young man, you find an elderly man who has already done the saving and is ready to the exchange with you, that's great. Because you could start putting your ideas into practice right away when you are in the best form as a young man. And you are full of energy, and full of ideas, and so on. And this is... Uh, again the same in the case of the origin of money, if you think of it, that originally it was indirect exchange, which is kind of conversion, and going to direct exchange where money is already there, the most marketable good has evolved. And as I say, the step from conversion to exchange is a huge step, very important, and this is something we must understand. So with this thought, I, excuse me, I am finished now, and you can call for break, and I think it's 15 or 20 minutes? 15. I think it's 15, right? <laughs> All right, everybody.